Story 4 of Stories Weird and Wonderful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. Stories Weird and Wonderful by J. E. Muddock. Story 4 the Specter of Barracan. In the early autumn of 1870, I was called to the bar after a long course of study, and at once installed myself in chambers in the Middle Temple, London. Naturally, I was full of enthusiasm, and felt proud of being able to at last call myself barrister at law. Of course, I thought, as all young fellows do, that I had only to write up my name on the lintels of my door for business to flow in. But equally, of course, I was doomed to disappointment, and weeks rolled away, but never a brief came to me. My parents at this time were residing temporarily at a little paradise of a place called Oneglia, on the Italian Riviera, and with them was my only and idolized sister, Etty one of the sweetest, dearest, and most beautiful girls the light of heaven's sun ever shone upon. Etty and I, being only children, doted upon each other, and between us there was the most perfect confidence and affection. She was a robust, merry, laughing girl, barely twenty years of age, and was destined then, as we all thought, to become a proud and happy wife in the course of a couple of years. She was engaged to be married to a young fellow who had already distinguished himself in the Indian diplomatic service and was at that time a member of an important commission that had been sent to the Emir of Afghanistan. He was the representative of an old South Country family and his people, the Chetwins and mine, had long been intimately acquainted. Tom Chetwind had known Eddie from the time they were children and long before there was any formal engagement, he had regarded her as his future wife. He was five years her senior, and after a distinguished career at college, had received an appointment on the staff of Lord Blank, then Governor-General of India, and the future seemed to hold for him all that man could desire. He had already been absent two years, and at the expiration of another two years, he was to return home, marry my sister, and take her back to India. To say that Eddie loved him would, after all, be but a conventional way of putting it. As a matter of fact, it would be difficult to convey an adequate idea how deep and all-absorbing that love was. It was not merely an emotional passion, an infatuation that time would subdue or destroy, but love in its most exalted phase. It was love that found its expression in perfect confidence, perfect admiration, and yet it was tempered with a recognition that human nature is full of weakness and flaws, and that after all earthly love, however near it might approach man's standard of perfection, was but a faint foreshadowing of the love which will endure when time shall have become eternity. To Etty, Tom Chetwin was a hero at whose feet she was content to sit in worshipful admiration, 
and who would ultimately lead her to that everlasting happiness that the world cannot give it will be said that this is the dream of every young girl who is engaged to be married in a certain sense that may be true for marriage as viewed by the maiden is not without its romance but etty's was not merely a romantic dream sober judgment begot in her rooted conviction while i was conscious of all this i was no less conscious that tom idolized and adored my sister he was clever brilliant staunch as steel and the fear of twenty deaths could not have bought his honor that was beyond price i may in passing say my father was a dilettante with ample means to indulge his tastes and that he had taken my mother to italy for the benefit of her health i had promised to join them in december and stay until the new year with them dear eddie's last words to me as the train steamed out of charing cross being now remember jack you are to spend christmas with us then she waved her hand and her sweet face was a picture of beaming happiness alas little did i think that when next i saw it the smiles and happiness were to be but memories my plans for going to oneglia in december were frustrated by a matter which from a professional point of view i could not afford to neglect it happened that in the course of november a firm of solicitors old friends of my father gave me my first brief it was rather an important civil action in which i had some chance of distinguishing myself and therefore i was anxious to devote every possible attention to it the cause dragged on its length through december and was then adjourned for the christmas holidays and though this freed me for a week or ten days i felt that the time was too short to journey so far as italy there was therefore nothing for it but to bear my disappointment as best i could one evening just before christmas i was sitting in my chambers bewailing the circumstances which prevented my being with my parents and sister at christmas for this was the first time in my life i had ever been absent from them at that period of the year when my friend archie campbell was announced archie and i had been fellow students and were very much attached he like myself had an only sister to whom he had long been anxious to introduce me with a view as he jokingly yet half seriously put it of making a match maggie's a sweet wee bit thing he used to say and you'll fall over head and ears in love with her directly you see her archie was a clever bright lad with a breeziness and freshness about him that reminded one of his own heather-clad hills as he burst into my room with a cheery laugh and grasped my hand in his vigorous honest way he exclaimed look here old fellow i'm off to scotland tomorrow to spend christmas and new year with my people and i'm going to drag you down to barracon with me there's no excuse you know you can spare a week anyway and i'm not going to lose this chance of introducing you to maggie she's a sonsy bit lass and though barracon's a gloomy enough place outside i'll warrant me you'll meet with a thorough good scotch welcome inside besides we're in the very heart of a fox-hunting country and you'll be able to get a spin or two well archie i returned it's hard for me to resist the opportunity of making maggie's acquaintance 
but the fact is I must read up during the brief recess, and... Not a bit of it, he cried. I've already written to say I should bring you down, so pray don't disappoint the old folks. Need I say, I yielded. The fact being, I needed but little persuasion, for it would compensate me in some measure for not going to Oneglia. And then, I must frankly confess, I was desirous of knowing Maggie, for I had seen her photograph, and I thought to myself, if she is only half as winsome as her picture indicates, she's worth knowing. The result was, Archie and I started the following evening, which was Christmas Eve, for the North, and arrived at our destination about noon on Christmas Day. Barracon was situated between Greenock and Wemyss Bay, and for generations had been in the possession of the Campbells. It was a strange, gloomy place. It must have been ghostly and gloomy enough in the summer sunlight, but as I saw it on that cheerless winter day, with the surrounding trees shivering in the icy wind, and the white mists wreathing themselves about it, while the landscape and the sky wore a neutral tint of leaden grey, it looked like the abode of melancholy itself. It was an old, castellated mansion that had been built in the days when strength of walls was necessary for self-protection. The approach was by a carriage drive through a dark wood now all dripping and dismal, while the ground was covered with sere and sodden leaves. Then an arched gateway gave entrance to a paved courtyard that was so overshadowed by a giant oak tree that grew in one corner that it was inconceivably dismal. The walls were damp and green with mold and fungus growths. The door was black oak, studded with iron, and sunk deeply in the wall, and was somehow suggestive of the entrance to a sepulchre. A manservant had been sent to meet us with a dog-cart, and as we had arrived somewhat before our time, this ponderous oak door was closed. Nothing seemed to be stirring, and the horses' hoofs rattling on the stones seemed to reverberate in strange hollow echoes. I was deeply impressed with the air of settled gloom that hung over the place, and I must have betrayed this, for as Archie sprang out of the cart, he said, I told you the outside was dismal, but you'll find the inside all right. He pulled the chain attached to a large iron bell suspended from an iron stanchion let into the wall and the clapper clashed and clanged with startling sharpness. In a few moments the door was flung open, and a young girl with a peal of joyous laughter bounded down the steps and flung her arms round Archie's neck. Then, remembering that she was in the presence of a stranger, she released him and stood blushing before me, and my friend at once introduced me to Maggie. Her photograph had not belied her, in fact, it had not done her justice, for it did not depict the mass of bright, wavy, golden hair, the languid blue eyes, the rosy health flush in her sweet face, nor the expression of happiness and sweetness that beamed in her countenance. Well might her brother describe her as a sonsy lassie. She was that in its truest sense. I found myself shaking her hand as if we had been old friends. In fact, she said, you know, I cannot look upon you as a stranger, Mr. Kingsley, for I have heard so much about you from my brother. Nor do I look upon you as a stranger, Miss Maggie, I returned, for Archie has made me well acquainted with you from description, 
and he has also permitted me to see your photograph, which, however, I may truthfully say, fails to do justice to the original. She blushed and laughed, and then led the way into the house, and a servant was at once summoned to show me to my room. It was an oblong room with a panelled ceiling and oak panelling round the walls. It was lighted by two long, narrow windows, and at one end was a huge fireplace with a ponderous carved oak mantelpiece. Over this hung the full-length portrait of a stern-looking man in the costume of a gentleman of the fifteenth century. Two or three less noticeable portraits hung round the room, and a bull-hide shield and two claymores also hung on one of the panels. The bedstead was a massive four-post antique piece of furniture, quite in keeping with the dark oak paneling and darker oak floor. The rest of the furniture was all of carved oak and antiquated. Nevertheless, there was an air of comfort about the place, for a great log burned brightly on the hearthstone, and the snowy linen of the bed and dressing tables relieved the somberness of the black oak. When I went downstairs, I was ushered into a cheerful room scarcely less antiquated, however, than my bedroom, and here I was introduced to Mr. and Mrs. Campbell, both of them stately and courtly, as became their race and position. Our residence will no doubt strike you, Mr. Kingsley, as being somewhat cold and gloomy, remarked my host with a pronounced northern accent. But I venture to say we know how to make our friends welcome and comfortable. There were a number of guests besides myself in the house, but I was the only one who could claim no relationship with the family. They were all either aunts, uncles, cousins, half-cousins, or cousins six or seven times removed. In spite of my being so utterly a stranger, however, I was soon made to feel perfectly at home by the heartiness of the welcome that was accorded me. Having got over the first feeling of gloominess with which the strange old building impressed one, at any rate impressed me, I found myself studying the place with keen interest, for I was by instinct an antiquarian, and particularly fond of old buildings. And further than this, I found myself studying Maggie, and involuntarily, as it were, seeking to monopolize her company and conversation. She was bright as a sunbeam, and truly like a sunbeam in this house, relieving the gloom by her ringing laughter and sweet smiles. After dinner, she asked me if I would like to see over the mansion, and I at once expressed a very strong desire to do so. Especially, I added, if you are to be my Cicerone. She laughed merrily, and away we went upstairs and downstairs, along corridors, past angles, through dismal passages, until we gained the western wing of the building, where a large window at the end of a long corridor commanded a magnificent view that stretched away across a deep and well-wooded depression to a skyline of softly rounded hills. She called my particular attention to this view, saying that they were all very proud of it, and considered it the lion of their house. After this, she led me into a long, narrow, and lofty room known as the Shield Room. It was oak-lined and oak-floored, with many carved panels and a very curious chimney-piece carved with grotesque subjects. A few portraits hung round the walls, together with some shields, a steel breastplate behind, and pair of steel gauntlets, 
a number of antlers of deers and a few old blunderbusses at the western end of the room was a stained-glass window and the light falling through this made a stain on the carpetless floor like a pool of blood the gloaming was deepening although a shaft of wild angry light from the sullen west where a rack of storm clouds hung smote the window and made that stain on the floor look awfully real it was about as ghostly a room under the circumstances as one could imagine and turning to my companion i said jokingly of course miss maggie such a house as this is not without its ghost my question asked thoughtlessly and lightly had a strange effect upon her the color fled from her face she looked nervous and glanced hastily about her then in a subdued frightened tone she answered hush let us go as i could not then attach any importance to her manner or remark i burst into a laugh and exclaimed surely you are not so superstitious as to then i suddenly checked myself for the earnestness of her manner and her serious tone commanded my respect as interrupting me she said excuse me mr kingsley but we scotch people have a greater faith in the unseen than your countrymen in my own family there is indisputable record of she hesitated as if reluctant to use the word lest i might laugh but after a pause continued why should i not say at once of a spirit having visited us but its presence in the house is an evil omen it means death a perceptible shudder passed over her the shaft of light had been blotted out by the storm clouds the crimson stain had faded and gloom and silence filled the room for a moment but only for a moment i was disposed to laugh for i was so utterly without superstition myself that to hear this clever intelligent girl talk of the presence of a ghost in the house meaning death seemed to me extravagantly comic but as i have said the desire to laugh was momentary only for the solemnity and gloominess of the room impressed me in an unaccountable way and seeing she was affected i offered her my arm and said come let us continue our exploration miss maggie the next few days were very pleasant and happy ones to me and short as the time was i had come to regard maggie campbell as something more than a mere acquaintance she seemed to me to embody all that is delightful in a woman allied to a keen intelligence and great shrewdness the weather which was dry and frosty if not particularly bright enabled us to enjoy many pleasant rambles in the grand old woods around barracon and i could not close my eyes to the fact that archie lost no opportunity to bring me and his sister together not that i objected on the contrary before the week had gone i began to think i was privileged to consider myself her very intimate friend if not something nearer than a friend since our visit to the shield room on christmas night i had never alluded to the subject of the so-called spectre although i had not forgotten it it had an interest for me in so far as it set me wondering how so intelligent and well-educated a girl as maggie could have belief in such things but as my stay was drawing to a close i was determined once more to speak of it in order that i might have a chance of trying to argue her out 
of what I then considered a nonsensical idea. Accordingly, I invited her to a stroll one afternoon, and we wandered in what was known as the cover. It was a stretch of somber pine wood, so filled with gloom and weirdness that it would have delighted the heart of Dante. Miss Maggie, I began, I should really like to know more about this family specter of yours, and the time and place seem most fitting for you to tell me all about it. She looked at me scrutinizingly for some moments, as if to assure herself that I was not jesting, and being satisfied apparently that I was in earnest, she said with something like sadness and solemnity, It is a serious matter to us, Mr. Kingsley, whatever you may think to the contrary. This phantom comes to us or to those we love to warn us or them of death and danger. Do you mean death to those who see it? I asked, scarcely able to keep my countenance. No, but to someone connected with them. Now, supposing, I said as I drew her gloved hand through my arm, supposing this phantom, as you call it, were to appear to me, might I take it as a sign that your family, that you, regarded me with affection? You are my brother's attached friend, she answered prevaricatingly, and with averted face. But I saw by her reddened temples that she had not misunderstood me. That scarcely answers my question, I returned. But let us dismiss the phantom, and I will frankly tell you that before ever I came here, Archie had frequently talked to me of you and said that you would make a noble wife. He was right, and my desire is to be able in the process of time to look upon Archie as my brother. Do I speak in riddles? No, she murmured, but we have known each other so short a time. True, but still, Archie and I are very old friends. He knows my people, my position, and something of my affairs. He has told me so much about you that I feel as if I had enjoyed your acquaintance for years instead of days, and I can truthfully declare that you have taken my heart from me. Her breath came quickly as, after a pause, she said in low tones, But you have another in its place. Yours? I asked quickly. Yes. We strolled back to gloomy old Barracon as lovers and that night in the smoking-room I said to Archie, Well, old boy, I hope our two families will some day be united. Well done, old fellow, he cried joyfully, slapping me on the back. Didn't I tell you that as soon as you saw Maggie you would fall over head and ears in love with her? Well, she's as bonny a lass as ever lived, and she'll be a treasure to you, though it's I, her brother, who say it. I went to my bedroom that night, filled with pleasurable sensations, and with many bright hopes for the future. It was a wild night, with a westerly gale blowing round the house, and, putting on my dressing-gown, I drew a large, old-fashioned easy-chair before the blazing log on the hearth, and took to dreaming about many things. Suddenly I started and turned sharply round, for I could have sworn I heard a sigh, but I saw nothing save the ghostly shadows which the firelight wrought upon the floor. The firelight was the only light I had, for I had put the lamp out. Upon my word, this eerie old place is making me nervous, I murmured audibly as I turned the log over with the poker to produce a greater blaze. As I once more settled in my chair, I again heard that sigh, 
and so pronounced was it that I started to my feet and experienced a strange, nervous thrill that was totally new to me. I said, what absurdity, and I was annoyed with myself for being startled. But at that instant there was a noise in the room, as if a bird was flying about. The sound seemed to travel with great rapidity from side to side, corner to corner, floor to ceiling. When I thought it was above me, it came from below. When I thought it was below, it came from above. Nothing was visible. There was nothing, so far as I could make out, that would in any way account for this delusion, if delusion it was. The sound was unmistakable, but what produced it? This strange noise from an unseen and unaccountable source was at once the weirdest and most uncanny thing I had ever experienced, and while I stood irresolute, trying to find some solution for the mystery, something icily cold touched me at the back of the neck, and caused me to shiver. This new sensation begot in me a sense of nervousness that I had never dreamed myself capable of. I struggled against the feeling, but could not resist it. I should not like to say that my sensations were altogether those of fear in the sense in which it is understood, but I was conscious of a shrinking within myself, as it were, a shrinking from an invisible something that had no name. In a few minutes the sounds ceased, and with my mind strangely disturbed, I resumed my seat and tried to account by rational laws for what I had heard, and at last I came to the conclusion it was due to some unconscious cerebration. The gloomy building, and what Maggie had told me, had made an impression all unknown to myself, and now, being alone on a stormy night in a very ghostly sort of room, my nervous system had made my senses victims of an auricular delusion. This was a sophistical mode of reasoning, but it satisfied me for a time, and I think I must have fallen asleep. At any rate, I suddenly sprang up with a start. The log had burnt to a handful of glowing charcoal. I felt cold and uneasy, with a sense of impending disaster. I was going to throw off my clothes and get into bed when I started. I may say literally reeled back, for between me and the bed was a luminous figure. In outline only was it suggestive of the human figure, and that figure a woman's. It was enveloped in a gauzy, diaphanous veil, the lower part of which faded away. The arms, when I first looked, were folded on the breast, but slowly and with indefinable grace one arm was gradually extended and pointed towards me, and with that act all my volition seemed to leave me. In obedience to some strange mesmeric influence, I moved mechanically to the door and opened it. Then the figure floated into the corridor, and once more I heard the sigh. Still under the spell I followed. All was silent as the grave, as dark as Erebus save for the faint unearthly light emitted by the phantom. Still floating on, it led me through the intricate passages until at last I found myself at the end of that corridor where the window was, from which such an enchanting view was obtained. Here the figure vanished, and for some moments all was gloom, 
but gradually it seemed to me that over the landscape spread a singular phosphorescent glow that revealed every detail of the landscape, though in a misty, dim way. But it wasn't a landscape I knew. There were palm trees, deep jungles, and beyond a sandy plain that stretched to a limitable space, and though it was so far off I saw, for my powers of vision seemed to annihilate distance, a man stretched upon the plain, and above him hovered a flock of vultures. His face was turned upward, and with a cry of horror I recognized it as the face of Tom Chetwind, my sister's affianced husband. With this recognition all things faded out, and I have no recollection of how I got back to my room. But hours after I found myself on the bed. It was broad daylight. I felt ill nervous and out of sorts, and when I had finished my toilet, I hurried downstairs. The family had already partaken of breakfast, and I was informed that the servant had knocked on my door three times without obtaining a response. As soon as ever I could get away, I asked Maggie to have a stroll with me, and when we were alone, I turned to her and said, Tell me, what form does this family specter of yours take? There was no mistaking my earnestness and seriousness, and as the color faded from her sweet face, she answered, It generally makes itself heard by sighs, then by a noise like that made by a bird's wing, and lastly it reveals itself like a thing of faint luminosity, with some resemblance to a woman. I caught her hand excitedly and exclaimed, My God, then I have seen it! and it has shown me my sister's affianced husband lying dead upon a sandy plain. With a cry of fear, Maggie reeled, and would have fallen had I not caught her. But in a few moments she made an effort and recovered herself. And then, in pleading and pathetic tones, she said, Oh, lose not a moment, but hurry to your dear sister and comfort her. Filled with a nameless dread, as I was, I could not disregard this injunction. Twenty-four hours had wrought a great change in me, and I no longer scoffed at the incomprehensible. I will go, I replied, as I caught Maggie in my arms, and for the first time kissed her. You told me that this phantom only appeared to those you loved, I said. Therefore, it is a sign that you love me, and that I love you, and our future is bound up together. She sighed an assent, and thus, under these strange and weird circumstances, we stood pledged to each other. Five days later, without any previous announcement, I was in Oneglia. The astonishment of my people may be far better imagined than described. Never before, I thought, had I seen Etty looking so beautiful, so full of spirits and joyousness. If my awful vision was true, no shadow of the coming sorrow had touched her. I found considerable difficulty in accounting for my sudden and unexpected arrival. I think I made some lame excuse about not feeling very well and wanting a change. Next morning, a number of letters were handed to my father. I was present at the time. One was addressed in a handwriting that I instantly recognized. It was that of Mrs. Chetwind. With a sudden impulse and a dire presentiment of coming evil, I snatched the letter up, tore it open, and read, We are distracted. 
brief news has come to us of the death of our beloved son tom we are without details but so far as is known he was attacked with some of his party by a band of marauding natives and foully murdered god comfort us all and god pity dear eddie break the news gently to her as i read this the room seemed to swim round me and with a low moan i sank onto a sofa what is the matter asked my father in alarm i handed him the letter merely remarking i knew it all beforehand it was revealed to me when we were able to discuss the sad news we decided that etty should not be informed for some time knowing as i did how her life was bound up in tom i feared that the news would kill her a little later i told her with as much joyousness in my tone as i could assume that since she left england i had become engaged to one of the dearest women heaven ever smiled upon and i had a particular reason why she should return with me and make maggie's acquaintance although she thought this precipitancy was totally unlike me she consented and we travelled back to london without break of journey after a day's rest in the metropolis during which i visited the chetwinds and learned that there was no possible room to doubt the report of dear tom's death we left for barrican and in a few hours etty and maggie were together then i felt some sense of relief for only women know how to comfort women when the heart is crushed and the infinite tenderness and sweetness of maggie's nature rendered her peculiarly fitted for such a task in the course of two or three days the girls had taken to each other as if they had been years acquainted then one night as we sat in the firelight in the old dining-room we gradually and gently told etty that in the far-off land of northern india he for whom she hoped and longed was lying dead gently as we broke the news the shock was cruel and for many weeks my beloved sister hovered between life and death but an angel of pity and goodness tended her in the person of maggie campbell and the infinite love and infinite tenderness of this dear creature nursed her wounded sister back to the things of life though the joyous spirit and light-heartedness had gone forever but when the balmy breath of spring was awakening nature around barrican etty was enabled to wander about with maggie she was quiet and subdued now for the shadow of a never-ending sorrow was folded about her heart jack she said to me one evening as we strolled in the deepening twilight along the terrace in front of barrican for me the world has grown gray but for you it is full of rich things and a great joy and infinite peace and though i have lost you have gained she took my hand and placed it in that of maggie's and then left us years have passed since that evening and maggie has long been my wife etty is with us she is a quiet thoughtful subdued woman actuated by a prayerful earnestness to lessen the sorrow and assuage the anguish of her suffering fellow-beings her own sorrow finds no vent in words but it is written indelibly on her sweet face sometimes my thoughts wander back to that awful night at barrican 
and I asked myself whether I dreamed a dream or actually saw the phantom. But whichever it was, the result was the same, and by the timely warning I was enabled to save my dear sister from a shock that might have killed her. End of story number four. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.